Anyway, it was a uh, final examination for an introductory English course at a local university. The examination was two hours long and the exam booklets were provided. The professor was very strict and he gave the following instructions. He said that you have two hours to complete the exam and after two hours every exam will be turned in. If I see you writing one minute after the two hours, you'll, disqual you'll be disqualified and you'll get no credit for your paper. Passes out the booklets, they start and they go to work. About 30 minutes later, a student comes running in late, and he runs down to the, to the professor, and he says, uh, can, can I have my exam book? And the professor looking at him and says, hey, you have, there's no way you're going to finish this in the time that's allotted. And he said, oh, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Give it to me. So he gave it to him, and the professor kind of smirked. And so this kid takes his exam, and he goes to sit down, and he starts to write. Well, at the end of the two hours, the professor says, time's up. Everybody puts their pencils down. They all walk up, single file up to the professor's desk, put them on the corner of the desk. There's over 300 students in the class. And so the first 300 that go up, they go up, they drop it off, and they leave. Well, after this whole long line of students goes to the front desk, the professor looks, and there's the, the guy that came running in late, and he's still writing away. And uh, he continues to write for another 30 minutes as the professor's getting ready for his next class. And he comes down, he hands him the book at the end of the extra 30 minutes, and he said, here, I'd like to turn in my exam. And the professor says, sorry, I'm not going to accept it. You're late. He said, and the student's incredulous, and he's angry. He says, well, what do you mean I'm late? It only took me two hours to take the exam. He said, yeah, but your two hours started 30 minutes before you came in. You're 30 minutes late, and you weren't here to hear the announcement that I would not accept a late exam. I'm sorry, but your exam's not acceptable. At this point, the student says, do you, do you know who I am? Being the son of a wealthy benefactor, he thought that they'd get a little mileage out of the professor, and the professor says, no, I don't. And the kid asked him again. Do you, do you know who I am? And the professor now is getting a little bit angry. He says, you know what? I don't know who you are, and frankly, I don't care. One last time, the student asked him, are you sure that you don't know who I am? And the professor says, absolutely, positively, I don't know who you are. The student thinks for a second, says, good. Walks over the corner of his desk, lifts up the stack of the exam, slides in the middle of it, and walks out of the room. <laughs> Now, you know, I love the story, but the problem is, if you think about it for just another minute, you'll realize that the young man wasn't going to get away with it. Eventually, his true identity would be revealed. It was funny for the moment, but somewhere along the line, it doesn't take a genius to figure out, hey, you know what, his true identity will be revealed. Because when it comes time to collect the exams, though he had to take the time to, to read it, to grade it, the bottom line is somewhere along the line he has to step forward, probably with picture ID, to be able to collect his examination. The story is funny, but it also teaches several principles or truths as we're going to be introduced in the book of uh, Daniel to a, to a man who reminds me a lot of that young man. A man who thinks he's going to get away with it only to discover eventually his true identity will be revealed. You know, there's, very, there's several principles that are taught in this section. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. There are several biblical principles that we can learn from a story such as that. The first principle is a very simple one, and I think most of us are aware of it, and that is this, that pride comes before the fall, and a haughty spirit precedes destruction. That ultimately, the other principle that we can learn is that ultimately one's true identity will be revealed. The question is, who is this man? And if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 11, 
we, we're heading down the heads, home stretch. In fact, uh, this week and next week, we'll finish up our study in the book of Daniel. But as we head down the home stretch, we're introduced to a man, and we're going to meet a man who uh, here in this particular chapter is called the Willful King. The Willful King in Daniel chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, start with verse 36. We read these words. <clears throat> it says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. It says, And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and great treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many, and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through them. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and to annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will be able to help him. There are three things that stand out in this passage concerning this willful king. But before we examine them, we need to reset what we've learned to date. If you recall, chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Daniel deal specifically with the final vision that Daniel receives from God and the instruction as to what the vision entails. Specifically, we're referred to here as the, the, the future, the immediate future of the people of God, the nation of Israel, and also of their land. And more importantly, as we see in this section, not only does it have to deal with the immediate future, which we've seen prior to this up through verse 35, but now it extends into the future or to the latter times or the end of the time. And if you recall from our study in Daniel chapter 9, there were 70 weeks of Daniel. There were 70 weeks or 70 sets of seven or seven years or 490 years that God predicts what would take place into the future. We know that 483 of those years took us specifically to the day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem as was prophesied and predicted by God in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that on that day the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, would be revealed to the nation of Israel as the one promised by God, the Savior of the nation of Israel and ultimately the Savior of the world. When Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, the crowds gathered around him and hailed Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed be the name of the Lord, and they praised him and they worshipped him as the king or the Messiah who was promised by God. The religious leaders at that time told the crowds to stop it, the disciples to make the crowd stop, and told Jesus himself, tell these people to stop praising you and worshipping you. And Jesus said this was the day that was appointed by God, that even if the multitudes would stop praising God, even the very stones themselves would praise God, for God's plan is coming to fruition exactly as he said. So 483 years passed to the day that Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, but there's a problem here that takes place. And the problem is, what happens to the last seven years period of time? 
Well, in the Old Testament, it's not revealed what the what plan of God was because it wasn't until the New Testament or Jesus himself revealed for the first time that God had a plan, and the plan was to incorporate into the family of God not only to those who would believe that were Jewish, but also extending to all the world, including those who were non-Jewish or the Gentile world, those who would believe to incorporate them into the family of God, and this was what God calls his church. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, his assembly. Church means ecclesia or assembly of believers. It was the first time that it was mentioned that God's plan included not only the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, but all who would believe in Jesus Christ. And so now we see revealed, which was a mystery in the Old Testament. Therefore, it's not mentioned, but it was a mystery that was revealed to us through Jesus Christ and subsequently in the New Testament writings in Ephesians and 1 Peter and other places that God had a plan, and the plan was to include all who would believe, which is a wonderful plan for those of us who are not Jewish. And so we're excited and we're happy that God chose to make that plan available to all of us. Now, at the end of that period of time, what we found is, as we go through it, there's, there's a break that takes place, and the problem is, how do we know, looking at verse 36, how do we know definitively that starting with verse 36 through the end, verse 45, that the time that's being mentioned is a future date and has not already come to fruition? Well, we know this specifically, that in verses up to verse 35, we know from history that we can look back and we can tell exactly who was being mentioned, what was being mentioned, when those times took place, when those battles took place, who the kings were. All of that was very, very specific. So as we look at this, it's an important question to answer and to ask also, and that is, how do I know that verse 36 is talking to us about a man who is to come in the future that has not already been fulfilled historically? And that's a valid question, and it's one that we need to look at. Because what we're going to see here is that God is telling us, and here it is in 536 B.C. when Daniel has this vision, God is telling Daniel as he records this that there's a day coming that has not even yet come in our own time that will be coming in the future of a man who will be a coming world leader who will rise up and do the things that God is about to describe to us in this particular section. But in order to understand it, let me give you three reasons why I believe that verses 36 through 45 are a future date. It is very common in Scripture for prophecy not to have a clear timeline with regards to these events. Throughout Daniel, we have already seen that. For example, in Daniel 2, God gave Daniel a vision of successive world empires that would arise. We know that Babylon was the first empire because God specifically said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. Babylon is the first of the series of empires that God predicted would rise up in in a future date. But he never said what the actual timing would be as to when they would when they would rise up and when they would depart. So we know that Babylon was first. We know that the Medo-Persia Empire was second, that the Persians would ultimately take over even then, that they would become stronger than their cousin partners, the Medes. The Persians would end up being the dominant force. God says, and after that, that Macedonia or Greece would rise up and take over. He specifically talked about Alexander the Great would be the greatest of those uh, Macedonian kings. At the end, when, when Alexander would fall, that four generals would take over over and take over his empire, which we know to be the case, and we know to be true historically, that after that, then Rome would take over. So there was a succession of, of empires that would come into play that God predicted at 536 BC that would take us into the first century, and we know that they all were fulfilled exactly as God says, because we've got the privilege or the benefit of hindsight. As we look back, we know it was accurate. 
We also know as far as successive kings, like I said, Alexander the Great, and there were four generals that took over, and that's the way that that was successive. But there was no timing as far as when one would take place versus the other. There was just a chronological order or order of events, but the time and the dates weren't given to us. That is very common in prophecy or scripture not to delineate specific periods of time. We know that the 483 years or those first 69 weeks of Daniel have already been fulfilled at the day that Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem. But now we've got this period of time where there's a gap before the last seven years will take place. And that's the period of time we find ourselves in today. So as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves the question, how can we be sure that that's exactly the case? Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And look at an example that Jesus gives. It's one of the most definitive examples of the point that, and the principle that I'm trying to make. That oftentimes in Scripture, oftentimes in the Bible, the days will just kind of run into each other without there being a clear-cut break between one period of time and another period of time. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters into Galilee. It says in verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. It says, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, which, had, which he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, and it was his custom. He entered the synagogue, and on the Sabbath he stood up to read. It says, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the specific place, definite article, the, the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped reading and he closed the book, he gave it to the attendant and he sat down. And as you can imagine, all the eyes of those in the synagogue were upon him. They were fixed upon him. They could not wait to hear what he was about to say about that particular passage that he chose to read. He specifically chose this passage in Isaiah. He specifically went to it. He specifically read the portion that he did. And he specifically stopped at the point that he did. And he said, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The passage has to do with the coming of Messiah. He read the passage and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. If you recall when John the Baptist was in prison and he doubted whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or not. He sent his disciples and he asked him to ask him the question. Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the long-awaited Messiah, the, the promise of God, the Savior of the world? Are you the one that we should be looking for? And Jesus sent the disciples back with this simple message and he said, Tell John this, that the eyes of the blind have been opened. And he continued to use the evidence that was available at their disposal to see that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the promised one of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. The angel, when he came to Mary, said this, you'll call him Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, the name means that Savior. He will save his people from their sins. The bottom line is Jesus chose this particular passage in Isaiah and it proclaimed that he was God in human flesh. It proclaimed that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the long one of the nation of Israel, and that he was. You know, there are a lot of people who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, right. Where'd you come up with that? Have you ever read the Bible? Jesus often claimed to be God. He never made any bones about it. He claimed to be God. When we're talking about the triumphal entry, he said, hey, this is the day that God had promised from long ago. And even if the people stop shouting, hey, I'm, these rocks will start shouting. I am who I claim to be. It was Jesus who said, you know what? Hey, 
And when Philip said, hey, show us the way to the Father, when Jesus said he would be about to depart or leave them, and he said he was going back to the Father, and they said, well, show us the way to get there. What he was saying was, show us the way to heaven, which is where God resides. Show us that way. And Jesus looked at him and said, Philip, how long have I been with you that, you know what, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I and the Father am one. I am God. In John 8, 58, he did the same thing when he said, even before Abraham existed, I am. And the religious leaders knew that he equated himself with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God in, in the book of Exodus. When Moses said, well, hey, uh, God, who should I say sent me to send your people free? And God said, tell him I am. Jesus claimed to be God often and very regularly and demonstrated that he was in the works and the signs and the wonders that he did. And when they heard that he claimed to be God, they picked up stones to kill him because he blasphemed before God, in their opinion. Why was Jesus put to death? Simply because he claimed to be God. Was that not true? It was true. Was Jesus innocent? Yes, he was, because what he claimed to be was true. Jesus went to the cross, an innocent party, and was put to death because he claimed to be God, which is exactly who he is. What's fascinating as you go through this, Jesus then says to them, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, but they were doubting. They were doubting that Jesus could be Messiah, and the reason they doubted that he could be Messiah was they were saying, but isn't this that carpenter's son? Don't we know who he is? He grew up right among us. And he said to them, no doubt you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. They couldn't believe that he was who he claimed to be because he was too close to them in their own opinion. They had a different idea of who God would be. They had a different idea of how Messiah would come. And many of us in our culture do today. We all have a different idea of what we think or who we think God is. And so what do we do? We create God in our own image. This is the God that I want in my life. I want a God who won't be too demanding. I want a God who won't require anything of me. I want a God who, you know what, won't bother me when I want to do what I want to do in that way that seems right, but its end is destruction. That's the God that I want. I want the God who, you know, I can go and give him an hour on Sunday, but the rest of the time I'm on my own. That's the kind of God that I want. You know, see, we're all in the business of building God, aren't we? We're trying to create him in our image. And the bottom line is this, that God created man in his image and in his likeness. And it falls into place exactly as that unfolds. So anyway, Jesus says to him, hey, you know what? This day, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Now the problem is this. In Isaiah 61, the very next verse, we read this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Isn't that interesting? Listen to me carefully. Isaiah 61, we read where Jesus said, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The next verse, he says this. And the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't read that. And why didn't he read it? Because it wasn't the day of vengeance of God. The day that Jesus Christ came, the time that he spent here on earth, as we learn now, was his first coming. And those in the New Old Testament had a problem delineating that. They thought that when Messiah came, that God's kingdom would be ushered in and it would just continue into eternity. They did not understand that when Jesus came or the Messiah came, that he would come one time, and the first time that he came was to do what? He was on a mission. And his mission was this, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. That Jesus Christ came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you still got your Bibles in the New Testament, turn to John chapter 3. 
John chapter 3, look at verse 12. You see, Jesus did not come the first time to this world to judge this world. Jesus came to save this world from the consequences of sin. In John 3, verse 12, in his response to a religious leader that came to Jesus and said, Lord, you know, Rabbi, teacher, hey, how do, we, how do, you, how do you get to heaven? We want to know. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And they struggled with trying to understand that. What's it mean to be born again? Well, he went through and he said this in verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Notice what he's saying? There's no one that's gone to heaven, but the one who descended from heaven. So Jesus very clearly says this. Look, I came from heaven to earth. I can give you a real good, clear directions on how to get there, because I've already been there. That's who I want to ask for directions. I want to know someone that already knows, because they've been there, how exactly it is that you get there. And he says, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion. He says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He says, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. For he who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see that? Jesus stopped at Isaiah 61, verse 1, and did not go to verse 2, because it was not the day that Jesus would come to judge the world. Folks, listen very clearly. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period of time that is yet in our future... The Bible very clearly teaches that Jesus Christ will come and he will come to this earth and the next time that he comes, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The basis of his judgment is very simple. The basis is, have you believed in me? Have you put your faith and trust in me and in me alone? That is the basis for his judgment and there is no other standard by which we will be judged. Because anything that we do will determine or dictate that what God says is true, that there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned, and all of us need saved, and we all need forgiven, and we need saved from the consequences of the inevitability that we are condemned already by God. And that is the message that Jesus came to share, to proclaim release of the captives, those who are captive by their sin. He says, I've come to set you free. Now, he stopped at that point, and very clearly, there's a, there's a differentiation between his first coming, which was to save the world or offer forgiveness, and his second coming, which will be to judge the world, and we find that in the rest of Isaiah 61, and ultimately, as he goes into the millennium or thousand years where Christ will reign here on earth. That is all there. So as we look at this, Jesus came first to offer forgiveness and salvation to all who would believe in him and receive him. However, at his second coming, he will come and he will judge the world, Philippians chapter 2. All the things up through the, verse 35 have already happened historically. We know that. We know the Seleucid dynasty. We know the Egyptian dynasty. We know all the wars that took place and Israel was stuck in the middle and they marched back and forth over the land of Israel and they were stuck in the middle of all that and we know that historically. But verse 36, there is nothing from verse 36 on that has happened historically. The second reason to believe that it's in the future is this. The description of Antichrist or this coming world leader is exactly, is exactly as he is described all throughout the Bible. There is an exact description that we find in 2 Thessalonians, we find it in Revelation, we find it in Daniel. All the word of God encompasses it and says, hey, this coming world leader, there has never been anyone on the face of the earth that will be like this man who will arise in the future. 
And the third reason that leads us to believe that it's yet in the future, in Daniel 11:40, we find, if you go back to Daniel chapter 11, that he's referring to the phrase, the time of the end appears. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, and at that time, the time of the end has to do with the time of the end of those last seven years, which are yet in the future, at the time of the end of that period of time, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will return to earth and he will establish his kingdom here on earth and his kingdom will have no end. So we look at all that and go, okay, you know what? It's very clear that the Bible teaches that, hey, all of this stuff is in the future. So what are the three things that God wants us to know about this willful king or this coming king and what, what can we learn from it and how does it help us? Verses 36 through 39, we're given some insight and I want to point out some things to you as they fall into place here. Notice what it says. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and he will magnify himself above every God. The king will do as he pleases. The first thing that we see is he has, he has a purpose, and his purpose is very simple, that he will do as he pleases. He's not subject to anyone else. He'll not listen to anyone else. He will act according to his own will. He won't run it by a council. He won't run it by his cabinet. He won't have to run anything by anybody. He won't have to take straw poll votes. He won't have to sniff the wind to find out what direction people want to go. Because frankly, guess what? He won't care. He will do what he wants to do, and that is his purpose. And let me explain something to you. That is why he is called the Antichrist. Anti has two meanings. One is, is that it would be a counterfeit, and the second means that he would be in opposition to Jesus Christ. The reason this coming world leader is called the Antichrist is because he is exactly the opposite or contrary to Jesus Christ. Because it was Jesus who said this, I have come to do my Father's will, not my own will be done, but the will of the Father. It was Jesus who basically humbled himself in Philippians 2, taking on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself to the point of obedience before God, that he would go to the cross to die for our sins. He would humble himself. He would despise the pain, endure the pain, despise the shame. He would do all of that for the joy that was set before him. It wasn't his will that would be done, but it was God the Father's will that would be done. And that, in that simple humility, basically, that is the attitude that was in Christ, that we're also told to have the same attitude in us. Hey, put other people before your now that is his attitude but you know what antichrist will have the exact opposite attitude his attitude is god's will there is no god but me and it's my will that will be done and anybody gets in my way i will squash you and i will terminate you that is why he is known as the antichrist it's interesting as we go through this and take a look at it it's satan who's behind this man it's satan that always had a always had a problem with god isn't it it was Satan who said, hey, you know what, God? Hey, I want to be just like you. It was a problem that Adam and Eve had from the very beginning when God said, you'll do it this way, and Adam and, Adam and Eve said, no, we won't. It's the same problem that you and I have today. It's the same problem our whole world has today, and that's this. God says so, man says no. God says do it this way, man says no, thanks, I'll do it my way. And the spirit of Antichrist is the same spirit that we see just permeating our world today. And that's exactly what he'll do. His purpose is to do away with God and to become God himself and to do as he pleases. He will not submit to God, nor will he submit to the will of God, and God will allow this to take place. He is a prideful, arrogant person. Notice his pride. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will even blaspheme against God. There is no God. I'm God. What God do you believe in? That's, that's foolish. That's nonsense. You'll believe in me. It's incredible. In, in uh, Daniel 7.25, it says, He will speak pompous words against the Most High. Isn't that interesting? That whole idea of blasphemy. Blasphemy simply means this. The denial of something. 
To blasphemy God means to deny that he exists. To blasphemy the Spirit of God means to deny the conviction of the Spirit of God in your life that the only way you'll be made right with God is by believing in Jesus Christ. The bla- that's why Jesus said this. There's only one sin that's unforgivable. And you know what that sin is? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because G- Jesus said in John 16 that when he left, the Spirit of God would come and would convict this world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when we blasphemy the Holy Spirit, we say, I don't agree. I don't agree with that, I don't believe that, and I think I can get to heaven some other way and on my own. That is blasphemy of the Spirit of God because there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there ain't no other way to get there but through me. Blasphemy of the Spirit. This guy is a prideful, arrogant, self-proposing individual who will do as he pleases. And it's blasphemy that is basically, you know, the final conclusion of everything that man is all about. Isn't that fascinating as we look at it? Think about it. In our world today, man basically will elect people who are just like them. Isn't that true? We will elect people who are just like us. That's why the world's in big trouble, because most of us are messed up. So we're going to elect people that are just like us, that represent us, that reflect everything that we believe to be right, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, the world talks about how wonderful democracy is, and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I think democracy is probably the best system of government on the face of the earth at this particular time. But there's a system that's coming, a government that will be established that's better than that has ever been established, and that system of government is called a theocracy. And that system of government as a theocracy is basically this, that God himself will judge and rule righteously, and he will not care what the rest of us think. That is the best system of government. Why? Because he will judge, and he will rule, and he will do what is right. Not, which, not that which is politi- politically expedient. And the thing about it is that he doesn't have to worry about whether we re-elect him or not because his term goes forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that great? That's a wonderful program. Notice what he says. He says the king will do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will pr- prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Isn't that interesting? He will prosper, and God will allow him to prosper. You know what's interesting, and I always struggle with this, and it's this. Have you ever seen it, and you wonder sometimes, it's like, God, why do you let such evil go on? Can't you stop it? And the answer is very simple. Yes, he can. Why don't you want to stop it? Because I don't want to. You want to talk about it anymore? Nah, that's good enough for me. I mean, that's it. He, he uses people to accomplish his purposes. And oftentimes he uses evil people. Ask the nation of Israel. Throughout the history of their world, God has used evil nations to discipline them for their failure to to believe in God, to receive his word, to believe on him. And God uses evil people in our life too to discipline us as well. And he will prosper. But notice the key phrase. He will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed shall be done. He will prosper until God says, that's it, you're not going to prosper any further, and God's will will be done. Now notice what we also see about him. It says, and he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, which means basically this, that there's a point where this guy in the future will have no regard for whatever religious training or background that he had. He will turn his back on everything that he knew up to that point, and he will turn his back on God. He will turn his back on whatever training that he had. It doesn't necessarily mean he's a religious person. It doesn't really mean anything other than the fact that, you know what, he'll just have no regard for his background. 
It could be that he comes from a, a lineage or heritage where there were godly people in his line, but he'll have no regard for any of that. Notice the second thing is, it says that nor will he, have the, nor will he regard the desire of women. Now, I had a guy come to me once and say, man, you know what? Well, that rules out someone that we all know is a world leader that could potentially be this coming leader. <laughs> and, and, and I had to explain to him, which I'm about to explain to you is, no, I think he may still be in the running, and here's why. Because nor does he have regard for the desire of women, specifically remember who this vision relates to, and that is the people of God, Israel, or the Jewish people. The desire of a Jewish woman was always to be the mother of Messiah. Because they knew by the word of God, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. They knew also in Isaiah 7 that there would be a virgin who would bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel. So they knew from the word of God that somehow, somewhere along the line, that God would choose a woman to be the, the person who would bring Messiah into the world. So the, 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 Jewish, the, the, the typical Jewish woman who wanted to do what was right before God always made sure she allowed herself to be put in the position where God could one day use her. The irony was, if you remember when the angel came to Mary and said that you were going to bear a son, she, the first thing that she said was, that's not possible because I'm a virgin. I said, no, that's exactly why it's possible. That qualifies you. Remember in Isaiah 7, verse 14, for a virgin would bear a son. Oh, that's right. So I am qualified. And it was funny, in her humanity, it was like, oh, I can't have a child. I haven't had sex with anybody. And that's exactly why God chose her, because she didn't. And a virgin bore her a son. And his name was Emmanuel, which is God is with us. So we look at this, and so the desire of women was to bear the Messiah had nothing to do with the man's desire for women. So as I said, he may still be in the running. Nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. He will not care about God or any other God or anybody else's religious belief because basically he's going to throw it all out the window and say, hey, you know what, I got an idea. We're going to one world religion. And the stage is set for that already, isn't it? Listen to me, folks. We are moving closer and closer to that time. And the reason I say that is because we live in a world today where religious differences are now the target of those who are trying to build an ecumenical movement that says we need to eliminate the religious differences of the world and we need to fine-tune a religious structure where we can all believe something together, the things that cause us to be divisive and to disagree. We're going to throw those things out and let's build some religion that we can all agree to embrace. And guess what? When this coming world leader steps in, he'll be exactly on line with that and say, you know what, let's eliminate everything that, that causes differences and divisiveness in the world because let's face it, you know what, religious beliefs are divisive. There is no way that you and I can believe the only way to heaven is by believing in Jesus Christ and still believe with those who think they can work their way to heaven. It is 180 degrees apart. We will never learn to get along. We will never learn to get along and accept one another's beliefs because they are diametrically opposed to each other. Don't we see that? How can you say, I can believe whatever I want to believe and I think that will be good enough to get you in heaven and then read the Bible and say, but you know what, there's only one way to heaven and that's by believing in Jesus Christ and he's the only way. And he says it himself, he's the only way. You can't believe he's a good teacher over here or he's a good guy or a good person when I believe that he's God. You can't believe you can work your way to heaven when, when he says there's only one way to get there. It's in diametric opposition to each other. And therefore, there will always be divisiveness on the face of the earth. Now, if we can get people to, just to eliminate all that and start all over again, guess what this guy's going to do? He's going to say, I got an idea. Why don't you just all believe in me? Why don't you just all worship me? And with his religious buddy, they're going to do exactly that. Just believe in me. Just worship me. 
but instead he will honor, instead of honoring God, he will honor a God of fortress, which is power and might, a God, and, and which basically is this, if you don't want to play ball with me, then I'll kill you. Does that sound familiar? Remember Nebuchadnezzar and his golden image? If you don't worship the golden image, hey, we'll throw you in the fiery furnace. If you don't worship me and my version of God, and you don't like it, we're going to kill you. So there's your choice. It, says, it said he will worship a God of fortress, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will put him first. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parswat the land for a price. Notice what he's saying. He's saying this. If you believe in me, I'll make it worth your while. Wow, that sounds like a modern day political slogan. Vote for me and what would you like? Lower taxes? You got it. Ambassadorship? No problem. Sleep in the Lincoln bedroom? Give us some money? We can work that out. See, you know, we'll just do whatever you want to do because that's the way the political process works. You scratch my back, hey, I'll scratch yours. And guess what? That's exactly the way this guy will come into power because then he'll be in a position to offer to whomever supports him anything that they want. Notice the conquest of this king as we go through it. It says at the time of the end, remember now we're talking about the time of the end, which is a time that, that is at the end of the seven-year tribulation, which is coming up. It says at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, which is talking about Egypt, and the king of the north, which is talking about Syria and the northern nations. In Ezekiel 38, we read that it, it possibly could be Russia, that Russia would end up uh, incorporating the, the, uh, the territory that is to the far north. They will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great ship, uh, a fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, which is Israel. It says, And many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Some of the Arab nations, he will extend his power over many countries, and Egypt will not escape. Ultimately, this world leader will take over Egypt. Remember, now he also ascends from ten-nation European confederacy that's put together, United States of Europe, whatever you want to call it, which is a future date. We already see movement in that direction with the euro and the currency changes and things of that nature, which is you know, basically all being foretold by God for 536 years B.C., and now we're moving into it today. He is going to rise from those ten. He'll be the 11th. He'll take over three. He's going to take over all of that, and now he moves into Egypt, and he takes over Egypt as well, and Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission, which has to do with uh, South, uh, northern African nations. And, but reports from the east and from the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Basically, what's going to happen is there's going to be a movement in the east which has to do with China and the, and the armed forces of China. They will rise up against him. Talks about in the north, or maybe Russia will be re, uh, revived to some degree because they're going to be destroyed in a great earthquake that w which will precipitate the battle of Armageddon. And that's all going to take place. And he's going to rise up and he's going to go after them and attack them. All of this takes place exactly as God says. We're not sure exactly the dating of it, but we do know this, that it's going to happen exactly as God says, just as everything that we've learned up to date throughout the book of Daniel has happened and occurred exactly the same way. As we look at all this, you get, ask yourself the question, how does it all end? How does it all turn out? And, and God's already given us the answer as we look at that. The final consequences upon this coming world leader are basically outlined very clearly, and they are this. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Between the seas refers to the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, that uh, this coming world leader will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. He will set up his kingdom there, yet he will come to his end. And no one will help him. 
Daniel 7, 11, we read when we studied Daniel 7, then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Again, in verse 26 of Daniel 7, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever and forever. We know from Daniel chapter 2 that when Jesus comes at the end of this seven-year period of time, that he will establish his kingdom here on this earth and that his kingdom will have no end. In our new series that we'll do starting in February, we'll talk about the, chronolog the chronology of those events very specifically, and we'll take a look at that. The question is, when is Jesus coming back? And that answer will be given the first week of the new series. Uh, so that, that'll be the first of February. But for now, I want to close with a couple of thoughts. I mentioned earlier that we live in an age of blasphemy. We live in an age where people will deny that God exists. We live in an age where we worship the creation rather than the creator. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25. Read it sometime. And blasphemy basically is a denial. To deny the very existence of God. To deny his plan for salvation for man. To deny who Jesus Christ is and claims to be. To deny all of those things. And if you doubt that we live in an age of blasphemy, let me read to you an excerpt of an article that basically sums up everything that I'm talking about. I'm leafing through Sports Illustrated the other day. And I see this headline, and it catches my attention. The headline is this. Jesus Christ, a superstar. The coverage of Michael Jordan's retirement was reverent enough to suit a supreme being. The media has done what Greg Elo couldn't. We have covered Michael Jordan without looking silly. We brought a sense of proportion to his most recent retirement, treating the second going as we would the second coming. They were evidently one and the same. Michael Jordan is the supreme being, and all the sound bites have told us so. Reggie Miller, he's not human. Larry Bird, he is God, disguised as Michael Jordan. Jason Williams, he is Jesus. He is the creator. I would not be here if not for Michael Jordan, said NBA analyst David Aldridge on ESPN, which opened one of its editions of SportsCenter last week with Jordan highlights set to a heavenly choir. He is a spiritual role model to millions. People go to Nepal and sit in an ashram for 10 years to learn what Michael already has incorporated into his being. To describe him in a single front page store, USA Today employed three greats, five greatests, one greatness, two marvelouses, three extraordinaries, one unbelievable, one unmatched, two awe-inspiring, two staggerings, and one superstar. And when that didn't quite make the point, the paper called MJ a great superstar before hyperventilating into a brown paper bag. It goes on to say Jordan has long denied, denied his own divinity. He did so in Barcelona in 92 and again last week when he told reporters with what now passes for self-deprecation, I can't save the world. His denial had the ring of plausibility to it. He spoke not through a burning bush nor even through Ahmad Rashad, which raises some sobering theological questions. What if Jordan isn't Jesus Christ superstar, but mere superstar? What if he is simply the world's best basketball player, a solid citizen and prodigiously successful salesman? What if there is a real God occupying even rarer air than Jordan, and he is serious about that whole graven image thing? Then I guess we're all headed for a very warm place, and it won't be the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic. It's funny, but it's not. Let me give you another example. A young man who I'm learning to respect more and more each day has been given some tremendous talent and abilities by God. 
He's a young, he's an underclassman, and they had a huge basketball game on Friday night against their rival team. And he leads their team in prayer. And here he is, a younger underclassman, leading their team in prayer. And he said, you know, as we were praying, I was just praying that, you know, for safety, I was praying that we'd all do our best. I was praying that, you know, that, that we would be reminded and just thank God for the abilities and the gifts that he's given us and also to be reminded just to have fun because it's just a basketball game. And he said, when I got to the point where I was, and it's just a basketball game, I sensed something different going on in the huddle. And he got the look that I always get in a lot of places that I, that I speak. And that is, you know the look? It's just a basketball game? It's just a basketball game? Do you realize how sacrilegious that statement is? It's just a basketball game? Hey, it's just a basketball game. But not for those who worship sports as God. I want to ask you a serious question. Who or what is your God? It's just a contract. It's just a building. It's just a widget that we're selling. It's just business. No, it's not. It's our God. It's only money. It's only material things. It's only my health. What? Who's your God? What do you worship? See, pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? See, there's not many people that I would talk to that would say, uh, yeah, I, I worship basketball. I worship Michael Jordan. I worship football. I worship baseball. I worship work. I worship money. I worship stuff. I worship, you know, my relationships. There's not very many people that I've ever met that ever said, yeah, that's what's first in my life. But you know what? The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your mind and all your soul. As I was talking to this young man, I said, let me ask you something. Would it be disappointing to you if Jesus came back before you guys got a chance to play that last game that's coming up against the guys that just beat you Friday night? You went, whoa. That's an interesting perspective, isn't it? How important would that be compared to what God has to offer his people as we look forward to eternity? I don't care what this world has to offer, but it all pales in comparison to what God's plans are for our future and my future if you've believed in Christ. Let me ask you something. Are you a prideful, arrogant person? Because pride always comes before the fall. Some of you say, I'm not prideful, I'm not arrogant. Well, then ask yourself a little self-examination. That is this. When God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, do you say yes? Or do you say, not me? When God says that there are none righteous, no, not one, you say, he ain't talking about me. When God says it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of works, it's a gift of God so that none of us would boast. When God says that, what do you say in return? When God says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, when God says that, what do you say? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to heaven but through me, what do you say? See, pride is the wall that keeps us from a relationship with God, and it's humility that destroys that barrier. It's humility that says, forgive me, Lord, for I'm, I'm a sinner. Forgive me because I am not righteous. Forgive me because I know that I have sinned. Forgive me because I have always believed there's other ways to heaven but then believing in Christ. You know, the prideful, arrogant person says this, God is opposed to the proud, and the pride of our day is summed up in these words. 
I don't have to believe in Jesus Christ for my forgiveness because I'm a good person. I don't have to believe in Jesus Christ because I can get to heaven on my own. I don't have to believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of my sin because you know why? I go to church every week and I give God my hour. I don't have to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin because I'm a good person. I never cheated on my spouse. I don't drink. Well, maybe not that much. Uh, I don't smoke. I, I don't run around. I don't cheat at my business. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm a good person. You know what that is in God's eyes? That is prideful arrogance. That is the sin of pride. And while you say that I have no sin in my life, God says the greatest sin that you have today is the sin of pride, that you will not humble yourself and admit that you are wrong before God, that you will not humble yourself and admit your need to be forgiven by God. That is the sin of pride. And you know what? God is opposed to the proud. If you do not humble yourself before God, you will never, ever, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. You will spend eternity in hell prideful and arrogant that you refuse the gift that God had to offer. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble because it takes humility to say, Lord, I am sorry. I need to be forgiven. I need you. I believe that Christ died for my sins and I ask that he comes into my life right now. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's accurate, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy. God, I pray right now for those who are struggling with their own pride, and they don't even recognize it because it's so deceptive, that they recognize that there is no good work, there's nothing they can do, they can't buy their way into heaven, because you own the universe, what could we have to offer? You own it all, you got it all. We have nothing. All that we have to offer you is our heart. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. And that if anyone would open the door and let him in, that he would come in and have fellowship with him. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I just pray that every person hearing these words would get that right with, with you, that they would get that resolved once and for all. For today is the day of the Spirit. Today your Holy Spirit is convicting their hearts that they know that if they died today, they wouldn't know what would happen to them. They're hoping, they're, they're betting, they're, they're wishing but you can make it solid and, and you can confirm it and you can give them confidence. The Bible says if you receive Christ, that you become children of God to those who believe in his name. God, I just pray for those who are right now struggling with making that decision that they'd lay that pride aside and in humility they'd cry out, God, I need you. I know I can't do it on my own and I believe that Jesus Christ was sent for whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, there's nothing else to say but to thank you. Just thank you for what you've done for me on the cross. Thank you for forgiving my sins. And thank you for allowing me to become a part of your family. And I look forward to spending eternity with you in heaven and the joy that you give me now while I'm here on earth. And I just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.